you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. We're coming up on the final week of election 2020, and I think all Americans can agree we'll be glad to see the back of it. Our airwaves clogged with campaign advertising. Our text messages have been commandeered for months. The October surprises started on Labor Day. This election will be long remembered, if not fondly, a bitter fight in a global pandemic that is generating record levels of voting and early voting. 50 million Americans have already cast a ballot. That's nearly 40% of all the presidential ballots cast in 2016. The final debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden is in the can. Sharp and pointed, but a relatively civil affair in comparison to the first. And now on to the hustings to make their closing case. And to break it all down, I'm pleased to be joined today by two of my partners here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas. We're going to cover 2020 in 20 minutes. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. Thank you, Dean. Bruce, last night's debate covered a lot of ground. Uh, It was actually fairly policy-focused. Of course, everything's relative, but they did address health care, the COVID response, race relations in America, and environmental issues. The Obama legacy itself was pretty well vetted. The president hammered his message, I thought pretty effectively, that Biden's time had come and gone in government. Vice President Biden uh, gave a pretty frank acknowledgement of his intent to end the oil industry. Did either candidate hurt himself, help himself last night? What were your takeaways from the final debate? Trump won the battle, but not so decisively that it reshapes the war. He benefited massively from low expectations he set for himself with that first somewhat unhinged debate performance. And I think his victory was more about style than substance. He seemed more confident, more assertive. He made voters consider this as a choice rather than a referendum probably helped him in places like Pennsylvania, particularly on energy policy. On substance, I'm sure he'll get beat up by the fact checkers and in seconds by DT here on uh, suggesting he's the best civil rights president since Lincoln, maybe since Lincoln, maybe better than Lincoln. Uh, LBJ fans may have something to say about that among others. And on refusing to release his taxes or offer his own alternatives to ACA or a credible COVID plan. But it certainly helped me as a voter. I now know what I'm doing. I'm voting for Kristen Welk. <laughs> Bruce, I, I thought you uh, might start the uh, way Trump came across uh, sort of stylistically here. Um, all I can say is I think that shows how far, how far we have fallen and how much he has debased this process. Please keep in mind, the reason he did better uh, last night was because the debate commission had to change the rules for him. And I think that says a lot about Donald Trump. He believes that rules don't apply to him. And uh, if you get beyond the fact that, okay, he didn't interrupt Vice President Biden like a child the entire time, you know, then you get to the substance of what he said. And I'm glad you brought up the, the fact checkers here, because I did check in with our, our friend Glenn Kessler over at the uh, Washington Post. And he said that literally Donald Trump broke the fact checker meter. That is the headline <laughs> in his piece today. He lied about everything. You contrast that with uh, Vice President Biden, who actually got to speak this time. And when he did talk, he was substantive, he was prepared, he was compassionate, he reached out to all Americans. And most importantly, you take all that together, he looked like a president. I think he uh, was especially strong on COVID, on the ACA, and on immigration issues. And and I think uh, you put it all together here. Were a lot of minds changed last night? Probably not. I think people are pretty well locked in here. 
But when Joe Biden is 10 points ahead here, and even if you call it a draw, which I, I would not, but if you say that, clearly Vice President Biden won. Well, Glenn Kessler and his Pinocchios aside, you know, David, the daily COVID case count uh, just hit 70,000. It's a peak last reached in July. Pretty stark takes on the pandemic response from both Trump and Biden. The president says there's light at the end of the tunnel. Biden says the tunnel has collapsed. Uh, you can't discuss this election without the context of the pandemic. It's, it's personal and economic toll. But on the polling front, you reference the RCP national average of polls. National average gives Biden a 7.9% lead. That compares with a Clinton lead at this point of 3.9% in 2016. But the RCP battleground state average of polls shows Biden with a 4.1% lead compared to Clinton's 3.8% lead at this point in 2016. Where do you see the campaign in the final week, particularly in those battleground states? Obviously, all of us uh, Democrats out there uh, still have that post-traumatic stress from 2016 here. So when you read off those numbers there, it sends a chill down, down my spine. But I think Vice President Biden sits in a better position than Secretary Clinton did four years ago, precisely because of 2016. He is not making some of the same mistakes that Secretary Clinton made. He is uh, focusing like a laser on uh, the industrial Midwest, trying to bring back the great blue wall of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and making sure Minnesota stays in, in, uh, in his category. If he is able to do that on its own, it becomes almost impossible uh, for Donald Trump to win a second term. And that ignores other states where they are playing, where you've seen all the campaigns go to, Arizona in particular, and of course, Florida. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think we're going to see, again, that, that focus on the uh, Midwest coming out of the Biden campaign here. They're running like they're behind. They've got a massive uh, lead in money, which they are now spending down and, and trying to make sure that this is not a big victory in the popular vote where the electoral vote doesn't come in. At the end. Bruce, is this going to be 2016 redux? Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with DT's uh, state, but I agree with most of what he said. I don't know that I'd agree that they're running like they're behind. There's uh, certainly a lot of their allies are talking about, you know, who's going to be the uh, deputy EPA administrator and labor secretary. But uh, but look, the, given their money advantage, uh, given the fact that there is a Trump record that they're running against, there are the smart money says you have to presume that the pollsters didn't aren't getting it wrong again this year like they did last time. That said, uh, Gallup found 56% of Americans say they're better off than they were four years ago, which is even a higher number than President Obama, President George W. Bush, or Ronald Reagan, who invented the phrase, all had at that time. Uh, the Trump base is certainly more enthusiastic in terms of um, super eager to vote for their person. And I thought one of the more effective things in uh, in Donald Trump's debate last night was his ongoing effort to contrast himself as a non-politician outsider against Joe Biden as a Washington politician. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into the kind of some of the silly merits that, that I don't have evidence on the Rudy Giuliani stuff. Um, at the same time, Joe Biden was a senator for 36 years, a vice president for eight years. He has a long record of positions on lots of issues, on lots of sides of lots of issues. Trump's been in Washington for four years. Now, he's got a short record on lots of sides of lots of issues. And I do think the way you open this, Dean, the pandemic is a, uh, is a millstone. Uh, and uh, he said the president says he is a wartime president. I think his biggest challenge is it feels like 1942. It does not feel like we're winning the war. 
Well, on the pandemic front, it does leave a little bit of attempted legislative business before the election. Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin refused to leave the negotiating table this week uh, on getting another legislative response. Uh, The Senate did pass another targeted bill, but all three corners of this process, Democratic House, Republican Senate, and White House seem to remain miles apart on, on getting another COVID package. David, is Congress done until the lame duck session after the election? Uh, I think so. Yes, Dean. You know, these Mnuchin and Pelosi conversations have been fascinating in that they seem to be negotiating and and making progress between the two of them. But obviously, uh, there are others who need to be party to this deal to make it a law. And the messages that we've heard coming out of the White House and then out of the Republican Senate have been certainly contrasting. The president has had been on again, off again on a deal. More importantly, though, the Senate Republicans, I think, are very concerned about what deal Mnuchin may cut. So I don't think we're going to see a, a, another COVID deal before the election here. We've only got 11 days to go. It's almost impossible to process something like that at this point. The last thing I think that we're going to see out of uh, Congress will be the confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice, and then they will go home to campaign. Maybe just one word on that, DT. I agree with you on the Supreme Court justice, and I agree with you they will not pass a law. We may see a deal. I wouldn't be shocked if there is a Mnuchin-Pelosi agreement on terms, in part for the White House, they'd love to reassure the markets that trillions are coming. And, uh, and I think for a Speaker Pelosi to get an agreement on, on a, a deal on her terms makes it more likely to be able to get such a thing in the lame duck. Well, while the election does rage on, there is some real policy movement in one area, and, and that's on the technology front. The Department of Justice filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google Parent Alphabet this week. The Senate Judiciary Committee authorized subpoenas for the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter. On Section 230, uh, the Content Liability Shield for online platforms, the Supreme Court and the FCC look to be gearing up. Uh, There's so many 230 bills filed in this Congress, I've almost lost count. The tech lash, particularly concerned with these massive multi-trillion dollar companies uh, that impact our daily lives. No matter who wins, it looks to be a leading policy focus in 2021, wouldn't you say, Bruce? I very much agree with that, Dean. And you have two things coinciding. First, the uh, the data dominant companies, uh, particularly as a result of the pandemic moving so much online and causing so much uh, digital transformation so quickly, are more powerful than they've ever been. And we've seen bipartisan concerns about the state of competition. Uh, It's not simply even the United States. We see it in states such as California. We see it in the EU. Um, That was driving for a while. You then throw in there are the political considerations where Democrats are really upset with platforms such as Facebook for not doing a better job of getting rid of misinformation and disinformation that undermines the Democratic discussion, while Republicans are really pissed off at platforms such as Twitter and Facebook because they say that they're making uh, decisions about uh, who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak that are impacting Uh, the electoral process. If you're a platform, number one, you can't win in terms of that political fight, but number two, you can't lose in terms of the marketplace. So that perfect storm for them is great for their stock, but uh, they're going to have to lawyer up and lobby up meaningfully both this fall uh, and next year. David, uh, Vice President Biden has continued to build out his transition team in the event he's elected. Uh, We're seeing the players emerge for what would form a Biden administration both in his operation proper and those jockeying for consideration. Bernie Sanders seemed to float his balloon for labor secretary this week. 
Uh, what are the policy priorities and the personnel shaping up in Biden land? Yeah, I think it's starting to become a little bit more clear on uh, what uh, early 2021 would look like for, for the vice president here. I think the first call he'll make when he secures the election, uh, if he does, I should say, either on, uh, you know, on election night or a couple of days later, will be to Speaker Pelosi to start this uh, policy process going forward. And then we'll see if the Senate, obviously, uh, is in Democratic hands, which will change, uh, you know, the way this, this process will work. But let's, a couple of things here. Number one, uh, policy priority one, two, and three is going to be COVID. How do we uh, do a reset and get the pandemic under control in the country. There is both the response in the health space on that, but also the economic stimulus space. I think that's the first thing out of the gates that they're going to focus on because really everything else falls from there. But also in the first 100 days, you're going to see have to take on priorities that uh, the vice president talked about that are incredibly important Democrats. So I think you'll see him address immigration in the form of a, a DACA bill dealing with the uh, Dreamer kids. I think you'll see him go back into the Paris Climate Accords. That'll be the first of a, a larger reset on climate policy, but Paris Climate Accords will be the first thing we do. I think you'll see him do something on um, gun safety issues, a background checks bill that, that is, uh, you know, not just popular Democrats, but 90% of people think around the country that there should be common sense uh, background uh, checks bill. Um, and infrastructure, um, that'll be part of the economic stimulus package, but that's something we've heard about for a long time. I think finally we'll get our wheels turning on it. So I think we're getting going to enter into the busiest legislative period that I've certainly seen in my almost 30 years in DC. I think the first, uh, certainly six months of next year are going to be incredibly robust from a policy perspective. You know, looking back in the, uh, you know, in, in the history books here, this to me feels like LBJ's first days in office here, just a very robust tackling of the uh, problems that we have here to try to sort of set things straight. It's going to be an exciting 2021. You know, you know, the only thing I would add here, and I would never question DT, who has spent his entire career working closely with so many of the folks who are on and will be on Team Biden. Uh, but the only thing I would add, and it's a little bit of a plug, Dean, for an upcoming 14th and G podcast is learn the word reconciliation. Because you don't need to blow up the filibuster to get things passed with only 50 votes plus a vice president. We saw that with the Affordable Care Act. We saw that with the Trump tax cuts um, and uh, exactly what can be done and how much can be jammed in. I agree wholeheartedly with DT. There's going to be a big COVID deal. But I think whether it's infrastructure or a lot of other tax and spend policies, we're going to see some extraordinarily large legislation happening in that first quarter of 2021. Uh, and the key to it all is reconciliation. And there is an upcoming 14th and G podcast that explains it all. Thank you for the plug, Bruce. You know, so much, uh, so much riding on the shoulders of 2021. It could always be worse, as my grandmother used to say. Uh, we think things have to get better in 2021. But will they? Uh, elections aside, a vaccine and the offing, life returning to normal. National's opening day is April 1st, and I aim to be there. Bruce, that's where my head is at. But what are the big picture items you are focused on as the 2020s roll on? Yeah, you know, so there are five big macros that we are watching and that we think, regardless of who wins the White House, are going to shape politics and policy, both in the U.S. and around the world. The first we already touched on 
is the accelerating fourth industrial revolution and subsequent tech lash against the data dominant companies. Uh, the second is a great global rebalancing that's going on. It's the core of it is a US China decoupling that we had a, a Zoom leadership series discussion on that's available if our clients email, they can, uh, I'll send them the link. Um, but uh, but it, the, the world was built for a US-Soviet Cold War. That kind of got blown up when the Cold War ended and it's, we're rethinking multilateralism and institutions. Third, the US in particular, but frankly around the world, we're seeing a lot of demographic change. Most nations are having shrinking workforces as they get older. In the United States, we're increasingly becoming a more diverse nation. I think overall to our benefit, but it's fueling a lot of the culture wars that animate our politics. Number four, uh, what we've seen, if you boil everything down, my summary of why there's populism and why there are people voting for change elections is because people feel fragile. They feel like the policies, parties, and institutions of last century are not protecting them against the realities of this century. You see it with the pandemic, with climate, with cyber, with debt, with trust, and that will continue to animate very disruptive politics unless and until somebody is able to convince uh, the, the population that we got you and we're gonna drive reforms that matter. The last one is both parties have civil wars going on. It's all been put on hold in the case of Republicans because, you know, look, we don't, first time since 1854, we don't have a platform. Nobody's allowed to disagree with, with the president, even though there's meaningful disagreement within the party still. And I think that reemerges if and when Donald Trump steps off the stage. The Democratic Party, you know, is unified truly on one thing, which is they really want to beat this guy. But after that, there's going to be a lot of fights between their progressive wing and their more centrist, moderate and establishment wing. And that is going to drive a lot of our politics. Well, one good plug deserves another. I think I smell a Melman slide deck in there somewhere. That is the actual summary of like a hundred slide decks all together in uh, <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> All right, we'll close it out on predictions. Bruce, you've, uh, you've been calling for a 269-269 tie in the Electoral College for some time. You still there? Well, it's 2020, so in a year of murder hornets, it will be a tied Electoral College. DT, where do you have it? Uh, Please don't I'm, agree with me, DT. Please don't I, agree with me. Please I'm definitely not going to agree with Bruce here, as funny as his prediction uh, might be, and not in a hot, hot way. I think it'll be Biden 312, Trump 226. I think the Senate flips. It'll be Dems 52, uh, Republicans 48. The, I think that the uh, Senate seats that'll uh, flip to Democratic control will be Arizona, Colorado, Maine, Iowa, and then some combination of the other ones in there. Uh, I won't put uh, North Carolina on there just yet, Dean, because I don't want to upset our uh, host of this call. But uh, <laughs> I think Cal Cunningham may uh, shockingly survive. And then finally, I think when I look at the House next year, I think it'll be 240-195 with the uh, Dems picking up at least seven uh, seats. So a pretty robust majority in the House. I'm not going to get as detailed as you, DT. I, I do think the Electoral College is going to be much closer than you have it. But Republicans are going to hold the Senate majority. They're going to hold it in North Carolina, and they're going to hold it in Michigan. Spoken like a Republican Senate chief of staff for a decade. <laughs> Somebody send this tape to Mitch McConnell. you got a true believer on the line. Well, guys, we have covered 2020 in 20 minutes. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for being on 14th and G. Thank you, Danny. Uh,